But it was, I mean, you had people commenting on social media, people I didn't know. They were just like, oh, this is horrible. They kept talking about Tuskegee and half of the time they got Tuskegee wrong because they kept saying they injected them with syphilis, which did not happen. Um, so it was, I mean, we just got beat up and I kept telling people, you know, I am not a scientist, even though I went to a math and science magnet high school in Atlanta and my undergrad degree is in biology. But Dr. Verrett and Xavier is a real immunologist with degrees from MIT at Columbia and studied at Yale. Welcome to Innovating Together, a podcast produced by the University Innovation Alliance. This is the podcast for busy people in higher education who are looking for the best ideas, inspiration, and leaders to help you improve student success. I'm your host, Bridget Burns. You're about to watch another episode of Start the Week with Wisdom, which for those of you who are at home, if you have not seen this before, these are weekly episodes where we conduct an interview with a sitting college president or chancellor, and we want to talk to them about how they're navigating the challenge of this moment. We're in a really unique time and we want to focus on their leadership and unpack how they are making decisions, how they are navigating, and hopefully it will leave you with a sense of optimism, a bit inspired and give you a bit of hope. And I'm Doug Letterman, editor of Inside Higher Ed. This week, we're really excited to bring you a conversation with the president of Dillard University, Walter M. Kimbrough. He's been recognized for his research and writings on historically black colleges and African-American men in college. Um, he's also emerged as one of the leaders uh, discussing free speech on college campuses pretty straightforwardly, which is how he does everything. He's also got one of the most vibrant and thoughtful presences of any college leader uh, on uh, and, and highlighted in his book, Follow the Leader, Lessons in Social Media Success from Higher Ed CEOs. Uh, Walter, welcome. welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's such an honor to have you. I feel like I've been a, a fan following for years. I've, I've seen you at, back in the world when we used to be in person. I saw you at events from afar, but I'm um, just so delighted to have you on here and know that um, obviously social media is a, is a very comfortable space for you. So for our audience at home, we are taking questions live and comments. So um, thanks for, for being here. So the first thing we want to do is just get a sense of you know, how are you holding up right now? Can you give us a sense of your perspective in this moment? What do you, where, are you in person, you're remote? Um, what's, what's going on for you so that we can dive into the conversation? Right, so we have been in a hybrid form all throughout the year, uh, more classes in person this semester than last. And part of that was just based on feedback from the students. So even in the beginning, when we decided that we would be hybrid in the fall. We participated in a broader study that was done by UNCF, and we found that 85% of our students said they wanted some kind of in-person experience. And so I did my own focus groups with some staff, with faculty, with students, and with some parents. And even parents, some who had comorbidities said, I saw how my child progressed being there in person. They need that experience. So even though it wasn't optimal with the distancing and everybody had their own single, even though I think people probably still like that, uh, wearing a mask and your class would meet maybe one day a week instead of two days a week. Uh, you know, we got through that and then we've opened up a little bit more to have more classes that are in person. Uh, so we've tried to make the best out of the situation as possible. I mean, it hasn't been optimal, but I mean, at this point in time now, I, I, you know, I really do see that proverbial light at the end of the tunnel when you keep watching the data. And I'm, I'm checking the New Orleans Health Department stats every week to say, well, what's it looking like? Is it, you know, what's the virus rate transmission and how many people are being vaccinated? So you see those things that are happening. 
uh, and you sort of get excited to say, I, I think we're about to, to get out of this. So um, I'm, I'm hopeful. Do you have you what's your sense of the students perception of their experience uh, being on the campus? What since since we know it's constricted and, and different, what are the primary things you believe they're getting out of it that make them made them want it and are making them appreciate it? Well, you know, for some of our students, and as we did our survey last summer, uh, particularly with our population, it, it really um, brought home the fact to me that, uh, I, you know, people laugh at me when I call it this. There's the, the famous singer Luther Vandross had a song called A House Is Not a Home. And so I call it the house is not a home theory where some places where students live and they're just like, I'd rather be at Diller in New Orleans with the pandemic than to be at home. Mm -hmm. And that really wasn't their home. It was just a house that they lived in. And so this became their home. Mm -hmm. And so they really wanted to be here. So that drove a lot of what I was hearing from students to say, this is still better than, you know, what I would be experiencing. Uh, like I said, it's not optimal. You know, there's going to be students who didn't have the traditional college experience and they've tried. I mean, we did some things with our coronation for our, you know, queen and our king. We did that a little differently. And, you know, our theater department did their play a little differently. So we're we're creating some things as we go along. We did a virtual commencement last uh, spring that I thought went well. So those things. But I think the, for me, the virus is even more serious for an HBCU in the South in a place like New Orleans, where you're talking about social distancing and people in New Orleans, not only do they run up and hug each other, they kiss too. So it's like you take away all the streets of people who like to hug each other and do all of that. And even on our campus, people run up and hug on each other. So that I think that made it for a lot of people even more challenging because it, it sort of stripped us of, of our humanity and what I think we do best. But uh, it's it's interesting because we we ran a story last, I guess it would have been last fall, about the fact that HBCUs in general seem to be doing kind of better at controlling the pandemic than than certain other groups of institutions. And it's partly, it may be what you were talking about before, students really buying into the idea that that being on campus was important in part maybe to get to not be where they would have right. been otherwise, but um, and it was just fascinating to me, and and it made a certain amount of sense, but it still kind of surprised me. Just that well, we we had a lot of leadership from our you know our our seniors who wanted to have the hope that they would be able to have an in person commencement. We had a student who who in Nashville from Nashville was out last summer hanging out at a club, got sick, got her dad sick. So she became this poster child. She did a podcast for us. She was uh, on a, a task force with the mayor of Nashville. So we had a press conference about it. And she's just the, the college student saying, this is my experience. Don't do that. So I, we had a lot of people where you didn't have to have the mass police. And on our campus, it wasn't a political statement whether or not you wore a mask. Uh, because when you're, you know, 95 percent African-American, you know, somebody who has been sick and probably even died. So you realize this is this is a real thing. It's not nothing to play with. Uh, so I think that helped us to all of those factors that we had a lot of buy in and people try to do their best. I totally see that. I also I mean, it's, it is would be such a privilege to be on campus and at HBCUs in particular, where the, the culture in person, the interaction, the community is such a huge value point that um, I that, that totally makes sense. Um, 
I wanted to see, you know, I'm hearing some rumblings from college leaders about their concerns about fall of 21. We're starting to see numbers coming out, and, you know, but it does seem like the concern level and how people are looking at this really varies by institution, by type, all that. And so I'm just wondering, can you give us a sense of your headspace uh, about fall of 21, anything that you're seeing at Dillard so we could have a sense of that? Right. So right now, in terms of our total number of applications, and we usually get a ton of applications, those are down. I would say significantly. And the main reason is that, once again, in terms of the personality of the people who are at Dillard, our recruiters are out. They go to the traditional fairs where there are lots of, of students that are there. So they get lots of applications. And so the conversation we're having now is that even though we had lots and lots of applications, our deposits are right where they were last year. So having fewer applications has not meant anything in terms of students who've already committed to be here for next year. So we're still on track in terms of, you know, making our class, which I think is really good. And so we're really trying to figure out now uh, in terms of, you know, are we uh, deploying our, re our, our people resources in the right places with the right students and families who want to be here? So that's a part of it. Um, but, you know, I, the thing that I've been predicting that we're starting to see now is that I think the cycle is going to be just delayed this year and you're going to have more people really starting to apply now and all throughout the summer because they'll realize things are opening back up. And I just don't know how many, you know, 17, 18 year olds and we really have a very traditional student age population are going to want to be at home when they have a chance to go to school. I mean, and we saw that this fall where I was just surprised a number of students and parents during the height of the pandemic that packed up that car and drove across the country to come to experience college. They still wanted that. So, I, you know, if you're in a situation where the virus rate is really low and, you know, 60 percent of the country is vaccinated, I don't see why people wouldn't come to college. They're not going to want to be at home. And I don't think the job prospects are going to be great at home either. So um, I, I think those numbers are going to I think it's just going to be a different work cycle for everybody on campus. I think this summer will be busier as people realize like things are opening up. I'm not going to be at home anymore. Let me get out of here. And I think as parents say, get out the house, too. So I think that all of those things working together. Uh, but we'll have to see. I think I'm probably more concerned that still there will be families that have not recovered financially and are, are unable to come to school because of that and not because of the virus. So we'll have to see. This is, you know, like last fall, we didn't know what to really expect. Our, our freshman class was or our overall enrollment was 1% less than the previous year. That was a win for us. So I, I don't know what this fall is going to look like. We'll just sort of see and evaluate as we go along. Well, actually, one last question on the pandemic, maybe before we and and the situation we're in now. Have you what's your sense been from your student body, your prospective students, their families, your staff about the we've read some about the reluctance of African-Americans to get vaccinated. And, uh, you know, we had uh, one of your colleagues on a few weeks ago talking about uh, his very prominent uh, uh, vaccination getting to try and encourage uh, uh, members of his community to, that it's safe, et cetera. But what, what are, are you what is how are you viewing that and, and what are you doing about it? Well, I, I still have scars on my body uh, from last fall. So last September, September 2nd, the president of Xavier of Louisiana and I sent letters to our campuses saying we're in the vaccine trial. And of course, it's a 50 percent chance that you would get the vaccine or you get the placebo. As it turned out, he got the vaccine. I got the placebo. 
So we sent it out saying, look, the research says that African-Americans are underrepresented in these studies and we need to be a part of it. So this is something we hope you all will consider. And we didn't discriminate against anybody, students, faculty, staff, alums, where there was a lot of blowback and people saying, oh, you're forcing the students and you must be getting paid to do. And I'm like, I just sent out one letter and that was it. I didn't say anything else to anybody unless they asked me about the, but it was, I mean, you had people commenting on social media, people I didn't know. They were just like, oh, this is horrible. They kept talking about Tuskegee and half of the time they got Tuskegee wrong because they kept saying they injected them with syphilis, which did not happen. Um, so it was, I mean, we just got beat up and I kept telling people, you know, I am not a scientist, even though I went to a math and science magnet high school in Atlanta and my undergrad degree is in biology. But Dr. Verrett and Xavier is a real mm -hmm. immunologist with degrees from MIT at Columbia and studied at Yale. He knows what he's talking about. So and I talked to a ton of doctors before we were involved in this. Um, so to me, it's funny now because I see, you know, some of my colleagues and they're rolling up the sleeves and people are just like, oh, such bravery. And I'm just like, where the hell were all y'all back when I was getting beat up? <laughs> I dragged for months over this. I'm on all these shows trying to defend why I'm participating in a vaccine trial. And I'm like, there are vaccines that are developed all the time. I, I told people when I was a kid, I got chicken pox. I remember that. My kids will never get chicken pox because between those times, a vaccine was developed and your kids get the, the vaccine for chicken pox and you don't say a word about it. So stop. So I'm, <laughs> I'm just at the point where I'm like sick of this. I don't want people to talk. It's like go on and get the vaccine. You need the vaccine. Your, your kids will have a dozen vaccines before they go to school and you won't say a word about it because the school is going to say either you homeschool them or they get vaccines and nobody pushes back. So <laughs> stop pushing back now. Let's get the vaccine. And let's move on. But I'm just sick of people now, just heroes. They're just clapping like, oh, there's something. <laughs> and I'm just like, I can't believe this. This is crazy. <laughs> they really did you dirty on that one. It's not fair. You, I, you, yeah. Um, but so I am curious. So I actually had signed up, uh, but didn't get picked to be part of one of the trials. You're the first person I've met who has. Um, are you actually getting it as a result? Like, are you moving ahead because you were willing to kind of put yourself out there? Yeah. So what happened? So here in the, in the state of Louisiana, they partnered schools with Tulane and LSU. And Dillard was partnered with LSU first to get vaccines for our nursing faculty and our nursing students. And then they offered opportunities for faculty and staff. So, I mean, I, I didn't meet the, the criteria, but they had a way to, to, to vaccinate more of us. So as soon as that happened, I could go back to Oxner Health Services. And I was a part of the Pfizer trial to say, OK, you can unblind me now because I have an opportunity to get the vaccine. And because I was in the, the trial, they had vaccine reserved for me. So um, I think I got my second injection maybe two or three weeks ago. So I'm, I'm fully vaccinated now. It's probably three weeks. Congrats. Ago. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. Congratulations. Uh, well, we can, uh, I, I actually want to take from that and head in the direction of social media because, um, and I know that people always want to, you know, talk to you about your, your how you, how, how do you dare to be so different on social media? How do you dare to show up as a real human being instead of a cardboard cutout of, of a college president? Um, I'm more interested, like, what's that been like in terms of you actually trying to help nudge the sector to be more conversational? You know, we, we want to better connect with students and with the broader you know community and i think that the way that you have modeled um how to show up as a real person who is you know you're willing to like I, for folks who are watching 
Um, President Kimbrough has been the most laid back and coolest guest as far as prep. Like he just, he was like, yeah, I don't even need to know anything happening in advance. I'll just roll with it. And that kind of comfort level, I think, comes because you have spent so much time being yourself on social media. And so you're, you're, you're not flappable. Um, and I'm just wondering if you could share with us kind of, you know, I bet, I assume there's very, a lot of good things that come out of it, but what is your most favorite and what has been the downside? It sounds like the vaccine gave you a sense of that, but I hope you haven't been trolled too much. Um, we just want to get a sense of, of that. Yeah. Well, so um, as social media is a very public place and anybody can comment folks that, you know, folks you don't know. So, I mean, you can do something great and you get lots of likes and retweets. That's good. And if somebody doesn't like anything, you know, five years ago, we hosted a Senate debate and some kind of way David Duke made the debate and, you know, they wanted me to cancel it. And I was like, we just rented out the space. I am not trying to break a contract because I don't, our contract doesn't allow us just to say, I don't like this guy and you can't have this event. We, we contracted and they selected, we had nothing to do with that. So then you get dragged. So it's like, those are the times you're just like, I'm not going to look at my mentions because there's just a lot of foolishness out there and I'm not going to take it personally. And if it's somebody who really knows me, who has an issue with me, then they can talk to me face to face. I'm not afraid. So if you got an issue with me, you need to come see me directly. But if you just do it on social media, then I'm just like you scared. And I, that doesn't bother me. I mean, I'm, if we're going to have a confrontation, I'm old school. Let's let's have a confrontation and let's go face to face. But you just sending something on Twitter. And I mean, it goes for anybody, too. You know, sometimes students will get upset about something. They want you to do X, Y and Z. It's like you guys have so much access to me. And I always tell our students, if you send me an email and I don't respond in 24 hours, it's usually much less than that. But if I don't respond in 24 hours, it means I'm dead or you need to call Liam Neeson because I have been taken. That's, <laughs> that's, that's all I can say. So you need to. Find, so if you got an issue, send me a note to say, hey, I got an issue with this. Can you explain it? That's you know, that's fine. So that's I mean, I. I've been reading some things because social media can be a mean place, which is why it is interesting now, because, you know, I'm I grew up United Methodist. My father's United Methodist minister. So we're in Lent. And every year during Lent, I give up social media. I post on Sundays. I don't read anything. So anybody who's commenting on this, I won't I won't see it at all. So I give it up because for me, it's sort of like I need that cleansing because there's a lot of good and a lot of ways to connect. And that's the thing I like about it, that I've been able to use social media to connect, to, to bring people together, to, to open up opportunities for our students to share. I try to use it very positively. When I hear good news, I like to brag on people. Um, I think that's a part of my job. So I use it for that to say, how can we inject more positivity? How can we share important information? Uh, on that as well. So that's that's the way I like to use it. Um, and so that on Sundays, I just post a lot of things. I mean, yesterday, you know, it's things that are happening on campus and then my son was in a basketball tournament. So I posted pictures from that. So you get the full range of things. Uh, so but it's a good, I think for me, I've had ease with it because when I became a president in 2004, that's when Facebook began. So my entire presidency, I've sort of grown as a president as social media evolved. So you go from there to Twitter, to Instagram, all these different platforms. So I had a chance to sort of experiment with them along the way as they were developing. And so for me, that's a part of my comfort level. But anybody who's become a president, you know, in the last 16, 17 years now should have some level of comfort because they have entered a presidency that has always had social media. It, when I first started, I could see more reticence from presidents because this is something completely new. And I did presentations at like CIC to talk about it. But now somebody coming in and sort of being reticent, it's like, 
well, it's been around a long time now. So you you need to sort of get over that. And as I tell presidents too, even if you're not on social media, you're on social media. That means people aren't talking about you. They just use your name. They don't have you can't they can't tag you. But <laughs> you're still on social media. So don't act like you're not there. You're you're there. I, I'm glad that you actually have spoken about this. I was wondering, I was like, yeah, I hope AC has tapped you to be the one leading any modules for new presidents or Harvard on um, social media engagement, just because you are kind of like the the one who's the most uh, experienced with it. Do um, we, we've seen in the uh, enrollment data that we've seen sort of in the pandemic era, we've seen uh, black men, uh, black students generally uh, sort of among those in affected the most in terms of having their academic plans waylaid. And, and that's obviously concerning because it seemed pre-pandemic that, that higher ed was starting to make some headway on equity issues, I would say a little more than had been the case previously. And I'm curious whether sort of how you feel, again, if there's a light at the end of the tunnel, how how that looks over the next year, whether the, the momentum will be restored. And I'm also partic particularly interested in, in your sense of what pr predominantly white institutions um, can be doing uh, to to better serve that population. And I'm, I don't know what happened, what, 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 what you do when you're, when you get asked by colleagues of predominantly white institutions, but interested in your thoughts about what institutions that are that don't serve that population primarily or or heavily can do to do better? Yeah, so there, there are two ways I, I think about it. Um, particularly from the HBCU space, there have been people who have said, "Oh, enrollment is dropping, enrollment is dropping, enrollment is dropping," and just sort of raises with red flag. And so I went deeper into the numbers and realized that. That was the tip of the iceberg. The real drop has been in the number of African-American students going to college. And I, I think I read something maybe within the last year that talked about that. That's that's pretty significant. And people weren't talking about that. And actually, HBCUs were faring better than African-American students overall. So there is a bigger picture going on here that black students are not going to college. What is and I'm not hearing enough of the, 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 the bells being rung to say what is happening with that. So you have fewer that are going. I'm worried that that's going to be exasperated when you start hearing these horror stories about kids in some of these urban and even rural school districts that have sort of done online. But it really hasn't been good and they're not logging in. I mean, there have been a ton of those stories. So that's that's the crisis that's coming on top of the one that we already have. Um, and so now institutions have to figure out how then do we create these communities uh, that are responsive to all students and particularly for African-American students. And so there's going to have to be some intentional conversations about what are we doing as an institution? Does our institution reflect our student body? Because I think a lot of people aren't even dealing with that issue. It's sort of like what, you know, the people in leadership who are giving the same kinds of arguments don't look like the students. And so you, you're having these, these, this conflict um, that, you know, they aren't teaching the students in the classroom. They aren't the administrators. So I think there are some things that can be learned from HBCUs. I, I think part of the concern that I have, because um, people are worried about the competition for students, if there probably really should be a competition for faculty, staff and administrators to really say we're we're going to have an institution that looks like our student body and they're going to have to really start trying to tap some of those people 
in those roles to serve as some of these other institutions. Uh, I think that's got to be part of it because it's different when you have somebody, you know, like Old Dominion just got their first African-American president. Brian, I've known him for years. I used to work at Old Dominion. Brian's worldview, he's an HBCU graduate. He's able then to have conversations that Old Dominion hasn't had before. And it's not to say anything bad about their previous presidents. The current president, John, was there when I worked there. I know Dr. Cook when he was there before. So they've had good people. But based on your experiences, there are certain things that come to mind that are, you know, more of an issue for you that you pay attention to. And so I think that they'll be able to benefit as a diverse institution to have someone with his background. I think we have to see more of those kinds of things that are happening to really address some of the issues, because if it's not part of your lived experience, sometimes you could be a special person that really dives in. But those persons, I believe, have been few and far between. That's really helpful. And um, I will definitely be following up with you because um, uh, I as trying to coach and guide um, predominantly white institutions. This has definitely been a struggle in terms of, you know, we're um, we're very comfortable um, focusing on our quantitative data and the quantitative, you know, how, you know, retention, graduate, all these things. But um, the real shift has to be qualitative in terms of really how do we take in input and feedback from students and how do you weight it against some of that? Um, quantitative data so that you can actually figure out what what kind of cultural changes need to happen on your campus. And I just think um, PWIs are really struggling with that right now. And I hope they continue to um, to, to focus on this rather than just give, giving up because it's hard. Right. Exactly. You know, it's, I, I was thinking I saw recently the new president of Ohio State made a commitment that says that they feel like their retention efforts with African-American students are being harmed because they don't have enough African-American faculty. So she's identified to say, we're going after, I can't remember the number, X number of African-American faculty. So they saw that as a reason for a retention issue. And it's, it's gotta be those kinds of things that people are doing to say, we feel like this too is a retention issue. The students don't have the right mentors and those kinds of things. So we're going to you know, go after people. I, I think that's part of the strategy. I think that's great. Yeah. President Johnson, I've been really impressed with her, um, her rhetoric just and the, a lot of the initiatives that are coming out. And I think we need to see more models of what white leaders of institutions do and not just assuming that, that the, the, a lot of the work needs to be done by any other community. Like we need to model that this is how you be a great ally and be a leader ally. Um, so obviously we are in violent disagreement, <laughs> violent agreement. I mean, um, so I did want to um, shift to just you as a leader. Um, I, I know that you have been a uh, president for quite some time and you've been a mentor to many. And I'm just wondering if you can share with us what advice you most frequently give when say I'm a new president, uh, I just got, I just found out I got the gig um, and I call you, what is the advice that you most frequently offer? Hmm. For new presidents, one of the things I do is to, I, I suggest that people come in and become a student of the institution and you spend time really learning about the history, the traditions and the people there. Um, so you know, I was at Philander Smith seven and a half years before I came to Dillard. I've been here almost nine. And when I got here, I was like, look, I know how to be a president. I've been a president of a church related HBCU in an urban setting for seven and a half years. I don't know Dillard well. So, you know, like I did at Philander, I spent time in the archives. It was just, to me, it's always interesting just to sort of get a sense of the history from the old pictures and stories that were written. So that's always a part of my, um, my preparation. And then I offered 30 minute meetings to anybody on campus who wanted them. 
just to sort of, you know, and I had like a few basic questions, but to hear about those people and their stories, who they were, who are your people, how long have you been here? You know, what if you were me, what would you advise me to do first? And those kinds of things. And when I got here, I talked to 200 people. I mean, so I spent a lot of time in my first six months just talking to people, trying to figure out who we are as an institution. So, you know, I, those things, I think, help you have a better sense and for people to connect with you to find out about who you are and that kind of thing. So that once you've done that, I think then you have a, a firm foundation in to say, all right, based on what I'm hearing and the kinds of things, these are some things I think we should look at. I think also, too, I think Ron Heifetz at Harvard talks about this idea of leadership being able to interrogate reality. And that's the tough part because you can come into a new place and people say, oh, we got, you know, this is great. This is great. This is great. You know, and you got to come and ask the questions like, well, how do you know it's great? I mean, everybody says something is great. I always tell our folks here, what are the what are the external validators? It's great for you to say that you're great, but does your major national association for whatever this is, have they given you any kind of recognition that you're great? Because I just I just can't go on. You're saying it's good that you have high self-esteem, but what kind of external validations do you have? And so we start talking about those kinds of things so we can have a realistic understanding of this is where we are. We think it's solid, but how do we get it to another level? So let's push that way. So I think that's a, a big part of it, too. But I, I think I think it starts with coming in and saying, I, you know, I don't know this place. Let me come in. Let me learn about the, the history. Let me learn about the people. Let me learn about the community. Let me be a part of the community and get engaged. Uh, I think that's I think that's a part of, of how you um, you should start. That is perfect advice, and I hope folks listen to it. Um, <clears throat> President Kimbrough, this has been a real pleasure for us. Thank you so much for being so just being the coolest president on the Internet um, and also uh, just being so accessible. And for folks at home, if you want to connect, uh, as you heard, it's at Hip Hop Prez. Um, is there anything else you would direct folks to uh, if they wanted to connect with you, President Kimbrough? No, all of my social media, I'm active, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook. Um, Instagram, and it's either at Hip Hop Prez or just my name. So you can find me there. But I mean, once again, I really won't be active until last, after Easter. So I got three more weeks. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, only positive shout outs and high fives on the internet. If you, if you, if you want to, you know, talk trash and add somebody else. So, um, well, thanks so much. And Doug, as always, uh, for being an excellent co-host and we will see you all next week. Um, have a great day.